Good morning, Life Church. Yeah, thanks to the one person who responded to that. <laughs> Good morning, Colin. <laughs> it's too late, you can't make up for it now. <laughs> so welcome, we're glad that you are here with us today. Um, as Matt said, we are jumping into a new series in the book of Ruth this morning, and so I hope you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone. I'll let you go ahead and find that. If you need a little bit of help, Ruth comes right after the book of Judges, right before the book of 1 Samuel in your Old Testament. It's short and small, but it's there, and I think it'll be helped this morning if you can go ahead and find that. I'm excited that we get to jump into this together today. Um, I met Josh Byers when he was 11 years old. He and his family started worshiping in the church that I was serving in at the time, and I led the youth ministry of this church, and he uh, plugged in right away as a sixth grader, and he was sweet and faithful and engaging and just the kind of student that you wanted to, you know, pastor every week. And so I was always excited to, to see Josh and all the other leaders in the ministry. They loved Josh's presence because he was just made a positive impact on the group as he, as he jumped in and joined us. And um, it was great. Like, Josh was growing. It seemed like his life was moving in the right direction Um, Until about his sophomore or junior year in high school, when uh, Josh and his brother and mother learned that for several years his father had been having an affair with another woman. And that news, uh, of course, led pretty quickly to what was an ugly divorce between Josh's parents and then just a period of of sort of downward spiraling for Josh. Um, He became a lot less uh, present. He wasn't frequently there as much, and even when he was there, he wasn't nearly as engaged as he had been. And we could just see that, that Josh was impacted and affected by the news of his parents' divorce in a pretty serious way. And eventually his mother learned that um, in that period of sort of angst and anger and frustration, Josh had found some solace in a group of friends who too frequently found solace in crystal meth. And um, we could see that. Once, once we knew what the cause was, it was pretty clear that Josh had been going down a pretty dark and bad road in life. Now, his mom, when she discovered that, asked me if I might be willing and able to, to kind of step in and walk alongside Josh as he came out of that. And um, I did that. I was aware then, and I'm aware today, that I am no one's savior. Thankfully, I don't need to have that job because somebody else does. But I was, I was glad to you know, walk alongside Josh as he kind of struggled to process everything that he was frustrated by in a healthy way. Um, and so every Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning for more than a year, Josh and I sat down at this little tiny hole-in-the-wall breakfast burrito place and we ate a breakfast burrito together, or two breakfast burritos together, and then I would take him to school. Uh, his parents had revoked his driving privileges because of the drug stuff. He was really glad to have somebody other than mom or dad drop him off at school. And I was glad to be that guy, so long as it meant that Josh and I had an hour together to talk. And at first, um, he mostly listened. I did most of the talking. And at first, I'm not really sure that he was hearing me. But I was talking, and he was there. And over time, he started to listen a little bit more attentively and open up a little bit more himself. And we just talked about the fact that really Jesus was the only person who could heal 
the hurts that Josh was feeling, that he was turning to crystal meth too. We talked about the fact that there's this hole in Josh's heart of aching and pain that only Jesus could fill. And as I said, eventually over time, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, Josh started to hear the things that I was saying to him. I was there the day when Josh was in the water next to me, making a public profession of faith in the Lord through baptism. I was there um, the day, a couple of years later, when Josh came to me and said, James, I've met this girl. And he told me about Samantha. And I was there the day that Josh told me that he proposed to Samantha. And then Kristen and I were there together for a number of months as we walked through premarital counseling with Josh and Samantha on our back patio late at night after our kids were in bed. I was there in the church building the day that Josh and Samantha made vows to one another, repeating after me as I led them in their ceremony of marriage. And I was there about a year later when Josh called me to tell me the news that he and Samantha were expecting their first child. And then I was there just like three months after that when my phone rang at 2.30 in the morning and a friend of Josh's and a friend of mine called to say that Josh had been killed in a car accident. I'm so thankful. I I mean, I I don't doubt at all that the Lord saved Josh. I don't doubt at all that Josh came to saving faith and the good news of what Jesus has done for all of us. And I was so thankful in that dark and hard season that followed that I could look back on the fact that the Lord had redeemed this broken young man. Uh, But that did not in any way mean that there weren't really hard, difficult, unanswerable questions that came out of my mind and my heart when that happened. I mean, that's inevitable when we face tragedy, right? We wonder, God, how could you let this happen? What purpose could you possibly have in quickly ending the life of this young man who had such a beautiful story of redemption and grace? What purpose could you possibly have in leaving behind a 22-year-old widow pregnant with a son who would never see his father, who would never be held by his father? God, what what are you doing here? And I think inevitably in life, we, we run into those moments when we have questions that don't have seemingly good answers. Moments when we question, God, what are you doing in this? What could you possibly be up to? Are you really there? Do you really care? Are you in any way able to intervene in this mess that I am facing? Those were dark days. Now the book of Ruth, it is set on the plains of a place called Moab and in a little town called Bethlehem about 3,000 years ago. And sometimes people who have read Ruth, um, they like to call it a love story. And I think it is, on a certain level, a love story. I mean, as we'll see, there is a matchmaker. Um, There is a wedding. Actually, there are several weddings. Um, And there is romance in this story. Though, in my mind, the most significant romance in this story is one that isn't revealed until all of the matchmaking and all of the weddings are done. But it is, even more fundamentally than that, a book that deals with a whole host of issues that matter to us. As we walk through this book together, we're going to see issues like 
race and gender equality and immigration and poverty and social justice really at the forefront of this very famous, very short, very simple story. But at its very core, more than it's a romance and more than it's a story about race or anything like that, Ruth is about the deepest questions that any of us ask. Ruth is about the questions that we ask when we get the tragic phone call in the middle of the night. It's about the questions that we ask of God when it seems that things are just falling apart. God, can you be trusted? God, do you know what you're doing? God, can we really love or serve or follow you even when you allow or cause such hard and difficult things in our lives? But those are the questions that the book of Ruth helps us to answer. And so let's turn to it this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin this famous, short, sweet story together. Father, we pray that you would give us this morning eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that as we listen to your word, you would reveal to us much truth about your character, your nature, and your purposes. And I pray, Lord, that we would see in light of this story and in light of our own stories that you are a God who can be trusted and loved, a God that we can follow and serve with joy regardless of what you bring into our lives. We pray that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, we'll pause right there. Um, We notice that we're introduced to a character, um, several characters really, and we're not told any of their names yet because first, the narrator of this story wants us to focus on a couple of other details. He wants us to focus on when the events of this story happened and where they happened. And so let's just think about those things for a moment. We'll start with when this happened. The narrator says, this happened in the days when the judges ruled. Now, the days of the judges, the period of the judges, was a period of about 300 years in Israel's history after Israel entered the promised land, before the kings started to rise to power in Israel. And it was a very dark and tumultuous and chaotic period for the people of Israel. So you might remember that Joshua was the leader that God appointed to bring the Israelites into the promised land. Once they were in the promised land, though, Joshua, he died off, and the Lord replaced Joshua with a series of human judges, male and female, who would lead the people from time to time and especially uh, restore them to the land and to faith in the Lord. But it was just a, a dark and tumultuous time because the Israelites never learned their lessons. And so they kept stumbling, they kept sinning, they kept struggling, and God would deliver them from those sins and struggles, but then they would go right back to where they had been. And so that's why you see in the book of Judges just this refrain that comes up again and again and again. It says, and again the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's this sort of downward moral and spiritual cycle through the book of Judges. Even if you just compare the leaders of Israel, the judges themselves at the end of the book are far worse than the judges at the beginning of the book because the whole book is about the nation of Israel in moral 
and spiritual decline. And it culminates with the statement. This is the very last sentence of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. As a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the period of Judges is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And it's against that very dark backdrop that the story of Ruth will shine brilliantly, as we will see in weeks to come. That's when this happened. Now let's talk about where it happened. We start in the very famous little town of Bethlehem. And we start with a famine in Bethlehem, verse 1 tells us, which is um, a bit ironic in the Hebrew language, the language of this story originally. The word Bethlehem, the name of this town, means house of bread. And so as our story opens, there is no bread in the house of bread because there's a famine. And so the characters in the story, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. As we think about that, we need to consider together what these characters are walking away from as well as what they are walking toward. And so let's start with life in Bethlehem because life in Bethlehem, despite the famine, meant for the characters in this story, life in the promised land. This is the land that God had promised to give to his people. He promised it generations before when he said to Abraham, all of this land that you can see will be yours. And more than that, more than just a place to call home, the promised land was really a symbol of God's covenant relationship with his people. So long as the people remained faithful to their covenant with God, God would remain faithful to giving them this land to prosper in and to be secure in a land that would flourish under his sovereign love and care. And so when the characters in this story walk away from Bethlehem, when they leave the house of bread, they're leaving the land of God's promise. And it's very symbolic of a spiritual movement away from covenant relationship with God, away from following the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God who has called them and saved them so powerfully in history. These characters, they leave the promised land in a blessed relationship with him. But it doesn't stop there. Then they also go somewhere. And they could have gone any number of places. There are probably any number of places where the famine wasn't severe, where there was bread to eat. But these characters choose to go to a place called Moab. Now, the the Old Testament Testament doesn't really say all that much about Moab. But everything the Old Testament tells us about Moab is bad. The Moabites are the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and and his daughter in Genesis 19, and that's not the worst of it. We read when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, following Moses, who's delivered them by the hand of God from slavery in Egypt, they were seeking to go through the land of Moab, and the Moabite kings refused to permit God's people even just to walk through their land. And so God cursed the Moabites for 10 generations. We read later in Numbers 22 through 24 that the Moabites, because they're against God and his people, hire a prophet named Balaam to prophesy against Israel. In Numbers 25, a host of Moabite women seduce Israelite men and lead them into idolatry so that God, in response, has to kill all of them. And all of this just adds up and adds up and adds up. Deuteronomy 23 tells us that no Moabite will ever be permitted to gather in the assembly of the Lord because the Moabites have been so opposed to God and to his purposes and to his people. And so everything the Old Testament tells us about Moabites is bad. Add these things together. 
walking away from the promised land in relationship with God and walking into Moab, these people are making an awful decision. Let's see what happens when they do that. Verse 2. The name of the man, now we learn it, was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now in verse 1, if, we, if you're reading carefully, you notice in verse 1, we're told that this man and his family went to sojourn in the country of Moab, which implies that they were intending to go there for a little while and then to come back home. Like their trip to Moab was, it was vacation more than it was permanent dwelling place. They just wanted to get some food and then maybe they were going to go back to Bethlehem or somewhere else. But more significantly, we learn in verse 2 that they didn't do that at all. They didn't sojourn in Moab at all. They went to Moab and they stayed there. They remained there. Now, I hope you know that our sinful behaviors often escalate beyond our sinful intentions. Often, when we consider sin, we don't realize how bad it will actually become in our lives. This is why nobody gets out of bed in the morning and say, says, you know what, I feel like embezzlement is a good idea today. Like we just don't do that. We get out of bed and we, we, we're greedy. We think about what we don't have. We envy others and we start to just intend to do maybe a little bit of sinful behavior, but often that grows and escalates into something far worse than we imagine. That's what happens to Elimelech and his family. They intend to just sojourn for a little while in Moab, but it becomes quickly their permanent dwelling place. Elimelech and his family, they stayed there. They stayed there until tragedy struck. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, her two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now I need to point out this family, who's already known to us for one bad decision, compounds that by continuing to make bad decisions. Um, the bad decisions I'm talking about are the marriages of Malon and Kilian to these two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and I just say that because about 10 times this week, autocorrect changed Orpah to Oprah for me. And I was like, I hate this. <laughs> you didn't need to know that. I wish that I had a filter that like, kept me from saying stuff like that to you. I say to Kristen often, I don't know why I'm allowed to talk to people. Um, anyway, <laughs> the bad decision that Malon and Kilian make is marrying Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Why is that a bad decision? Well, because the Old Testament law is clear that the people of God, the Israelites, were not to marry from outside the covenant community of Israel. They weren't to marry people from other nations, especially not places like Moab. And that's not because God is like this cosmic racist who just wants his people to hate other people. No, it's because God knows what would happen if his people married people from outside of the covenant community of faith. If the Israelites married non-Israelites, they would quickly be tempted to worship the gods of those non-Israelites. And so to protect his people spiritually, to keep them pure, God commanded his people to marry only from within the covenant community. Yet that is exactly what Malon and Killian refuse to do. 
And they do that, and tragedy strikes again. Now we're going to leave the story right here with Naomi in a very desperate situation. She's grieving over three funerals. She's stuck in Moab with two Moabite daughters-in-law that she doesn't want. She's broken. She's broke. She's desperate. She's full of grief. And though we won't see it until next week, even at this moment, she is very full of real questions about the character and integrity of the God who has allowed all of this to happen. She is wondering, God, are you there? Can I trust you? What are you doing? Should I be following you? Her questions, just like her pain, they're real. Now, obviously, there is much more to come in this story. But before we get to what is to come in the weeks ahead, I want us to pause and think about where this story is really headed in the end. Now, most of the time, if you pick up a book and you read the last chapter of the book before you finish the first chapter, you're going to ruin some things that are pretty special. So like right now, I'm reading one of the Harry Potter books to my youngest two children. We're big Harry Potter fans in the Sharp family. If you're not a Harry Potter fan, that's okay. You can repent later. But um, we love those stories, uh, and they have not led us into witchcraft and wizardry, thankfully. But um, we love those stories. I'm reading one of the books to my youngest two children for the first time. And my daughter, she keeps trying to pepper her older brothers, who have read the books many times, for spoilers. She like, wants to know what's going to happen to so-and-so. She's like, does Hermione really die? What's going to happen here? And my, my oldest sons, are, they're rebuking her because they don't want her to know the end of the story before she's gotten through all the other details. Normally, if you read the end before you get there, you ruin something. But in this particular case, that is not the case. In this particular case, if we t- consider the end of this story and we consider where the whole thing is going, I think it actually will allow us to consider what God is doing in every page of this story in a sweeter way. See, in the story of Ruth, God, he shows up in mighty ways, in in powerful ways. But his work in this story is never like him parting the Red Sea. It's never like rescuing people from a fiery furnace. And it's never like raising people from the dead. Now, when God shows up in the book of Ruth, he shows up in small and ordinary and mundane things. Yet that doesn't mean that his work isn't glorious. Because what we actually see if we consider the end is that the small ways that God works in the story of Ruth, they actually pave the way for the biggest, most glorious work that God has ever done when he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world in human form to live and to die for us. And we'll glimpse that if we just read ahead a little bit. So in your Bible, just flip over with me to Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 to the end. I want to show you where this whole story is headed so that we understand what's going on in the middle. Now, the weddings of Malon and Kilian, they aren't the only weddings in the story of Ruth. There's another one still to come. It's the wedding of Ruth the Moabite to a man named Boaz. That happens at the end, and then Ruth and Boaz, they have a son. His name is Obed. And actually, the main point of the book of Ruth is the product of Ruth and Boaz's marriage. And that becomes very clear if we read this genealogy that's at the end of the story. Now, normally, when we come to a a genealogy in the Old Testament, we can be honest. Like, we like to skip past those things because they're just boring lists of names. But this one, 
is rich with significance. Let's read Ruth 4, 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I told the first service I expected applause for pronouncing all of those names correctly. (laughs) That's another one of those things that I really just shouldn't say out loud. If you're new to reading the Bible, there are a couple names in the biblical story that stand out above the rest. Like it's clear that they have a significance that is uh, beyond normal person's significance. And the name of David, the son of Jesse, the grandson of Obed, the great-grandson of, Bo- of Boaz and Ruth. That is one of those names of great significance. David was Israel's greatest human king. He was far from perfect, but he was the king after God's own heart who reigned and ruled over God's people in the way that the Lord wanted him to reign. And he did a lot of significant things, a lot of famous things, But the most significant event in David's life wasn't when he killed a giant or anything like that. The most significant event in David's life was when, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made a promise to David. David and God, they're having a conversation, and God promises to David that he will put a king on Israel's throne from David's family forever. There will be a king forever on Israel's throne forever from David's family, and the Lord calls that person, uh, here's the Hebrew word, a Mashiach, we say Messiah, and it means literally anointed one. God promises an anointed king to come from David's family line who would forever sit on David's throne. Now, that promise could be fulfilled one of two ways if we think about it. One way that it could be fulfilled, there could be a king from David's family who's on the throne of Israel, and then when that king dies, there could be another king from David's family on the throne of Israel, and then when that king dies, there could be another king on, David's, on Israel's throne from David's family, and that could go on into eternity. That's how God could keep the promise of a king from David's family line on Israel's throne forever. But the problem is we know from history that doesn't happen. That's not how that goes. After just a few generations the family line of David ends on Israel's throne and the kingship becomes divided, the kingdom becomes divided. There's a whole mess. The other way there could be a king from David's family line on Israel's throne forever would be if there is a king who comes from David's family who sits on the throne and who himself reigns forever. And that's exactly what has happened. And that's even what the book of Ruth is pointing us to See, the most significant thing about the book of Ruth is that it's all about paving the way for the one who would come from David's family line and sit on the throne of Israel forever. He would be the true Messiah, the true anointed one. He would be a king unlike any other king who reigns not with a sword in his hand and an iron scepter in his fist, but with peace and love and grace the later prophets would add that this king would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And what we need to see is that Ruth's story is not about the love story between Ruth and Boaz. It is not about Naomi's courage or bitterness. 
It is not about barley harvests and threshing floors and weird Old Testament marriage laws, although we're going to see all of that in the weeks ahead. The book of Ruth is ultimately about the work of God and all of the tiny little details in Ruth's life and Naomi's life and Boaz's life, bringing about the establishment of the family line of King David so that he could bring about the establishment of the family line of King Jesus. See, Ruth is about God working in Bethlehem and Moab and everywhere in between to secure for us the family line of our Savior. Matthew makes that clear when he opens with yet another genealogy. Matthew 1, 1 starts this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And often, immediately, we're like, genealogy, I'm going to skip that. But if we did that, we would miss the point of the book of Ruth. Just a few verses later, he says in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then he skips down a few more verses again. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And that word, Christ, is a Greek word that's a translation of the Hebrew word, Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one. Far from being Jesus' family name, it is, in fact, a signal of the fact that Jesus is the king who reigns forever from David's throne, from the lineage of David, from the lineage of Ruth. All this means that our redemption hangs in the balance as we read the book of Ruth. Now, at every turn in the story, we're going to see that God is working through behind-the-scenes things, through little details. But we're going to see that that work is ultimately about bringing about the family line of Jesus, our redemption in Christ. My friends, we should think if Elimelech had not made the fateful decision to leave Bethlehem, if Malon and Kilian had not made the fateful decisions to marry Moabite wives, if all three of them had not died on the plains of Moab, then Ruth would never have become the ancestor of the Messiah that God intended her to be. Yet God worked in the details of this story, in the real pain, the real brokenness, and the real grief of these people to bring Ruth and us something much better than we ever could have hoped for or ever could have deserved. That's the real heart of Ruth's story. The Bible is showing us that God is working in all things to do something far more glorious and far greater than we ever could have imagined. And that is a message that we need to hear and linger on in moments of suffering. Now, usually when we suffer, we respond to suffering by questioning one of two things about God. Usually, when we just process the, the reality of evil in the world, the reality of pain, the reality of suffering, and then especially when we think about those things in our lives, we're tempted as people to doubt that God is two things at the same time. We're tempted to doubt that he is both good and great. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like when we look at suffering in the world, we think that that maybe God is good but not great, or maybe he's great but not good. So if God is good but not great, then that means that he loves us. 
And he wants what's best for us. He wants us to thrive and be happy and to live peaceful, full lives. He's good, and he wants good for us. But the reality of pain and the reality of suffering makes us think, but he's not great. In other words, he's not able to bring us that full, peaceful, joyful life that he really longs for us to have. That's how a lot of people respond to the reality of pain and evil in the world. They say, God would do something about this if he could, but the world's just broken and he can't do anything about that. Others, on the other hand, won't doubt the greatness of God. They won't doubt the ability of God to do something about the problems in the world. They'll doubt his goodness. They'll doubt the fact that God cares. They'll doubt the fact that God wants to or desires to intervene in the world in any way. That's classically the way that people explain and respond to suffering and pain and evil in the world. We say either God is great but not good, or good but not great. He cannot possibly be good and great in light of all of the evil that we see and all of the suffering that we experience. That's how people typically think. But I think if we consider even just what we've already looked at in Ruth's story, we see that Ruth's story is showing us that God can be both good and great. I mean, the the details of Ruth's life will prove to us over the weeks ahead that God is indeed in control of everything that happens, the massive things that happen and the mundane things that happen. He's in control of famine in Bethlehem. He's in control of marriage and life and even death on the plains of Moab. And he's not only in control of those things, he's actually steering all of those things through the generations of history to bring us his chosen one, his anointed one, the Messiah. See, everything that happens in the book of Ruth serves God's purposes. Nothing's an accident. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is by God's deliberate purpose and design. The story proves to us that he is great. But then the story of Ruth's greatest ancestor, the Messiah Jesus, proves to us also that he is good. It proves to us that he will do anything necessary to eliminate pain and evil and suffering in the world. In fact, the story of the Messiah proves to us that God was willing to endure infinite sorrow and loss and pain himself. He was willing to clothe himself in the rags of humanity. He was willing to suffer the scorn and shame and humiliation of the cross. He was willing to endure the agonizing separation from the Father that came upon him on the cross as he drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved in our place. And he was willing to do all of that so that we might be called the children of God and one day inherit a redeemed heaven and a redeemed earth where there would be, as Revelation 21 says, no more mourning no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, where God himself would dwell among his people in glory forever. Jesus did all of that because he is very good. The story of Ruth and the story of Ruth's descendant, our Messiah, they prove to us that both of these things are true. And yes, we can look at pain and suffering in the world and struggle to understand how both of those things can be true. But that doesn't mean that they're not true. We have so much evidence to realize that, yes, our God can be trusted when we consider who he is and how he's worked in history, in his word. Our God does know what he's doing, friends. 
what he is doing is good, and he is great enough to see it through. And now at this moment, most of God's work in our lives, it's not of the parting the Red Sea, raising people from the dead variety. That doesn't mean it's not miraculous. But most of it, we just, we just don't see it. And so I hope you know that at this very moment, the Lord is working in your life. In fact, he's doing a thousand things in your life, and there's a good chance that you're aware of three of them. Because most of them are subtle, but he's there. He's faithful. He's working. He can be trusted. He is both good and great. Now, I know some of us, we are in the room today, and we're suffering. Like, we've walked through the doors, and we're really weighed down by grief and pain and trial. In fact, just between the two services today, I talked to somebody um, whose family land was destroyed in a tornado this week in our state. I talked to somebody whose three-year-old son lost his father this week. Those are just two conversations of the many that I had between the two services. And I know that if we were to like, take a poll in the room, that many of us have walked through these doors and, and we're grieving. We're in pain that's real. Our suffering is tangible and, and palpable. It is, it is there. It is real. And if that's you, then I just hope to remind you today that God is just as good, he's just as real, and just as sovereign today as he was on the plains of Moab 3,000 years ago. And he's just as real and just as good and just as sovereign as he was on the day when his son Jesus was nailed to the cross for you. He's just as good and just as great today as he has always been. And that does not mean that we will be able to put a nice tidy bow in our minds on the suffering that we face. That does not mean that we will be able to explain away how God is working all things together for our good and for his glory but it doesn't mean that it's not true. He is working. He can be trusted. And as you consider your pain today, I just, I just want to invite you to imagine the delight that dawned in the heart of Ruth the Moabite the day in heaven that she recognized what God did through all of her suffering and all of her pain. The day in heaven when she recognized the fact that it was through her pain and grief and sorrow that God brought into the world his chosen one who would save the world. And there will be a day when you can see what God has done through your pain. It won't be today, but there will be that day. Hold on, because he is good and he is great. And I'll also just say that I know some of us, we've walked through the door and, you know, we're not really walking through a season of trial or suffering right now. And of course, like, praise God for that. Um, But if that's you, I'd, I think my main word of encouragement to you would be to wait, because it is coming. I mean, it's one of the surest realities that we face in life in a broken world. Everything falls apart. Pain will come. Trial will come. Turmoil will come. Before they do, won't you set your mind and your heart on the unchanging character of our God and on his good purposes, his good wisdom, has good providence. And then lastly today, for all of us who call Life Church home, I just want to speak to the fact that I know some of us have felt real and deep pain over the last months of this season of transition in the life of our church. 
that some of us, we, we walk in here still carrying scars and wounds from this time of change. And I just want to say, let's not forget that God can and does use even scars and wounds like ours to accomplish his glorious purposes for us and in us. I mean, just think. If God can secure the family line of King Jesus through famine in Bethlehem and death in Moab, what might he be doing even now through the pain and the trials in our lives? Let's pray to him. Father, we pray that you would help us to see, Lord, not easy answers regarding suffering or pain in our lives. We just pray that you'd help us to see you, good and great, powerfully and sovereignly overseeing all things in love for your people and for your glory. And may we, when we struggle to process the hurts that we feel, when we struggle to process the reality of sin and death and all its effects in our lives, may we never cease to to put our eyes on our Savior who revealed the fullness of your goodness and the fullness of your greatness for us when he died in our place. And considering Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done, may we respond to you even in the hard moments by crying out that it is well with our soul because you are good and great, Father. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.